So our reading for today, um, which I'm going to do the sermon on, is from Acts chapter 3, the whole thing. It's uh, page 1094, 1095 in your pew Bibles. Right. One day... Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped up to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, They recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one, and you asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. That's God's word. So, we're continuing our, our, our series that we've been doing for the last couple of weeks. Um, 
And it's a thematic series on the theme of a spirit-filled church. So we're not looking at every question that comes up along the way in Acts and out of all the books of the Bible. Um, Acts is one of those that throws up more questions than most. So, but we're going to concentrate on this question of the spirit-filled church. And today, I'm going to tell you that a spirit-filled church is one that repents all the time. There's other things as well, but that's the main one. But before we get into it today, we're looking at chapter 3, this chapter I just read out there, and that immediately presents us with a bit of a problem for uh, our theme, because this chapter is actually one of the few in the whole book of Acts that doesn't mention the Spirit at all. So, you know, how can I talk about a Spirit-filled church using a chapter that doesn't talk about him? Well, I think we can, and we can do so safely for two reasons. Firstly, if you remember from the first week, Acts starts off with a promise that the Holy Spirit will empower the apostles to be witnesses of Jesus to the ends of the earth, right? And at least on one level, that's what we see happening here. Peter, through his speech and his actions, is telling these people about Jesus. So clearly, the Spirit is here doing exactly what Jesus promised he would do. Secondly, the other reason I'm confident this chapter teaches us about the Spirit is um, a little bit more complicated, but basically, in John's Gospel, we're told by Jesus that the Holy Spirit has two main roles right, in our lives, in the, well, in the life of the world, I suppose. He counsels believers, and he convicts the world. So he counsels Christians, you know, he lets them know what's true, what's right, and he gives them power to live for God and overcome sin. And then he convicts the world again about what's true and the reality of sin and all that stuff, right? Not that they accept it, but that's what he's up to. And again, on a certain level, that's what we see happening here. So for those two reasons, I feel fairly confident that this, about preaching about the Spirit, because although he's not mentioned here, he's behind He's behind it all, you know? You don't have to mention him to see him. And today's passage is a great example of seeing both of these aspects of the Spirit's role in action. Because on one hand, he's pushing Peter to preach this message, which convicts them about their sin and their need of Jesus. Because what we see Peter doing here, and indeed in the last sermon that he preached as well, is he takes the religion of the Jews, right? And he re-centers it around Jesus. It's a very Jewish book in some ways. But he takes all of their hopes about the Messiah, about the promises made to Abraham, and to be a blessing to the world, and he reinterprets it all in the light of Jesus. And then he says, this is the same lad that you killed. You killed the Messiah. You need to repent. You need to repent and you need to listen to this guy. So very clearly, the Spirit is using Peter to bring about conviction. I mean, it's, it's probably the harshest message in some ways that you find in the Bible. You know, it's like, you killed the Messiah. But also, it's an example of the Spirit greatly counseling the apostles. Because what this sermon represents, uh, the Peter, ser- Peter sermon, not mine, is a mature understanding of Jesus and what he's all about. There's no hint of what you see often in the Gospels, which is basically the apostles are like, you know, a bunch of Egypts, really. They don't know what Jesus is on about, right? But here, 
they're on fire. Peter is like on the money with every point. And, you know, Peter, more than anyone else, he's the apostle that really frustrated Jesus. Like, he got it wrong so often. But he's finally connected all the dots. And right there, that's the work of the Spirit, who's been teaching them a proper understanding of the gospel. So then, you might say to me, oh, well, that's good, Richard. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, you've shown us the Spirit is here. Fair play to you. But what's the Spirit saying to us here in Kirkpatrick today? Well, there's a couple of things. A couple of things we could talk about, but I'm going to focus on two that this passage brings up. And it's this. A Spirit-filled church can at least... This is the first one. It can at least... I'm being super cautious here. You'll see what I mean in a second. But it can at least be open to seeing possible, extraordinary, miraculous things happening. And I'm cautious. But for the most part, the way in which we will experience times of refreshing and blessing is through repentance and faith. Okay? So the first thing, anyway, possible access to extraordinary power. What am I talking about? Well, as sure, you've probably guessed, uh, where we see this and where that discussion comes from is in this rather amazing miracle and the question that it naturally gives rise to when we look at it, which is whether or not our own faith could affect some change in a similar way today, right? I used to work in a home, you know, for disabled people, and I thought about this a lot because those boys and girls, uh, you know, they really wanted to walk out the front door like I did. And like, that would be amazing, you know? If, if you could pull someone out of a wheelchair and have them walk out the door, the joy that it would bring to their life. And, and this miracle, you know, it's different to just praying for someone to be healed. This isn't a res- God's response to a request. This man isn't even really sick. He's got a condition that he's had since birth, but he's learned to live with it. And he's not even asking to be healed. And Peter isn't asking God to heal him either. Instead, what Peter does is he looks at him, and tells him, in the name of Jesus Christ, walk. Now, to be clear about what's happening here, this is not a spoken request with a hope that it will happen, as most of our prayers are. This is a spoken assertion with the expectation that it will happen. That's a whole other level. You know, we regularly pray here in Kirkpatrick for um, our sick people, and I would like to think that at times, some of the people who do recover do so on the basis of our prayers to God. So anyway, but Peter explains that how this, how he does this has got nothing to do uh, with his own godliness or even by his own power. It's by faith in the name of Jesus that this happens. And certainly in the Gospels, twice in Matthew, once in Mark, uh, we heard Jesus saying that if if you had faith, you could tell a mountain to jump in the sea, and it would. And of course, there's a famous story of Peter again. And when he sees Jesus walking on water, he walks on the water for a few steps before he starts sinking. And what does Jesus tell us the reason for his sinking is? His faith was little. He doubted. And these stories, right, they create a tension for us um, because are they saying to us, you know, that if we have enough faith, we could do similar things? And that's kind of where we go when we read this, right? Could I be doing it? Should I be doing it? And um, usually how we answer it is, no, not really, no, that's not, that's, no. 
And what we do is we make all these qualifications that would be necessary for something like this to happen, and we end up, I think, totally killing what Jesus says and what Peter demonstrates. Right now, for sure, those qualifications are legitimate. You know, for instance, it's true that as the book of Acts goes on, um, there are less and less miracles, more focus on preaching, teaching, and, and argumentation. And also, there's actually a few times in the New Testament where the apostles themselves don't heal people. Uh, in Philippians, Paul has this a co-worker called Epaphroditus who nearly dies from sickness. Another time, Paul famously tells Timothy to drink a little for his uh, stomach, which is, he's always getting sick from. Another time, Paul tells us he leaves behind this guy called Trophimus, who was sick. And then Paul himself meets the Galatians because they looked after him when he was sick. All these times are example of where the apostles didn't heal someone. Or if they tried to, it didn't happen. So, you know, even the Bible itself seems to move away from the idea that this is something that is a regular or semi-regular part of the Christian life. And not only that, right? But in all fairness, I have heard of people who tried to exercise great faith in this area and nothing came of it. Like, for instance, I, was, I had a friend, um, a Christian friend of mine, who went to a funeral in Tala in Dublin. And uh, this guy who had died, I can't remember his name, I think it was Jerry. He it was a young man died with a family, so it was, it was a big funeral. And he also had a brother who was a Christian. And in the middle of the funeral... The Christian brother stood up and said, <clears throat> Jerry, in the name of Jesus Christ, I ask you to get out of that coffin. And nothing happened. So, I don't know, we just don't see examples of it. Now, the priest who was conducting the funeral was nice enough, but basically, they were all kind of laughing at him. So to put it together, right, the New Testament seems to move away from this, these kind of things. I haven't heard any stories of Christians in Ireland doing stuff like this. And the one story that I have heard is of a guy who ends up looking like an Egypt. But here's the thing, you see. The bottom line is, the Spirit does not let us get away with the idea that this is completely out of bounds. The theme of this sermon has been the Spirit-filled church. Well, I would say that a Spirit-filled church shouldn't expect this kind of thing to be normal, or certainly not regular, but a spirit-filled church would be open to the idea that at the right time, in the right place, for the right reason, you might be the man or woman who's expected to do something like this. I feel compelled to say it. Look, you know, the last thing I want you to do feel like is feel guilty or pressure because you reckon you don't have enough faith to do something amazing for someone that you love or something amazing that you know will feel really good in this or that situation. I just don't want to shut the door on the possibility that God might use us in this way. And like I was talking to some of my more doctrinally uh, conservative friends about this, and I was saying that uh, the kind of thing I've laid out, and they were like, oh, no, 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 no. The Spirit points us to the Bible and to the sacraments and to prayer, which brings us to Jesus. We don't need miracles to encourage our faith. And that was only for the beginning of the church. And I pushed them on it, and they were like, we went back and forth, and they said, well, you know, the early Presbyterians did talk about the ordinary means of grace, which by implication leaves room for the extraordinary means of grace. That's all I'm trying to point out, really. But as I said, it's not going to be the kind of thing of our everyday experience. 
That's not going to be where we go for our everyday refreshing and blessing. And in fact, that's the danger, actually, of talking about miracles, isn't it? Because then you get fixated on the idea that God is going to do this amazing thing in your life when actually the promises to meet you every he promises to meet you every day in a very ordinary way. And that's enough. Now to set up what I'm going to say next, <clears throat> you need to know that this is a fairly big passage that I'm looking at, right? All of chapter 3. But I'm going to zero in on one verse in particular. And you could accuse me of being a bit selective or arbitrary, but you see what Peter is doing, as I said before, is he's realigning Jewish religion around Jesus. So he's talking about lots of things that are perhaps not so familiar with us to, to us. And he ends up making an argument that for the most part, we don't need convincing of. We already believe Jesus is the Messiah. We believe that the prophets were talking about him. And it's kind of like walking into a, this intense conversation between, that's going on between two people over some point of doctrine. And, you know, it sounds interesting, and it'd be cool, I suppose, to fully understand what they're going on about, but should I be bothered? Well, yes. But what I want you to see is that it may feel like it's kind of irrelevant to us, but actually it's of direct relevance to us because he also tells them how they should live in the light of Jesus and what he has done. Right in the middle, and again at the very end, Peter gives them and us the philosophy that should underpin a person's life after they have accepted Jesus. This is one of the ways that we experience God's blessing and be refreshed. And it's there right there in uh, verse 19. He says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And this sentence is actually very, very important for us because this is one of the, the keys to understanding how a Christian is supposed to live. There are, there are others like, but this is one of them. And I think it's one that doesn't get talked about much. Um, Calvin, the first Presbyterian, I suppose. Well, the apostles were the first Presbyterians, but Calvin is uh, whatever. You know, he was a boy in here, right? And he said that uh, Christian life is a race of repentance. When Martin Luther started off the Reformation, he nailed the document to the door of his local church, 95 Theses. I don't know if you've heard about this. And in the very first one, he said, when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he meant that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. In other words, as this verse is telling us, repentance should be a lifestyle. Our lives are to be a continual turning away from sin to God in order to be refreshed. Of course, the thing is, what does that mean? What, what am I on about? What's repentance? People say different things. They say, I, I heard a guy once tell me that it's about feeling sorrowful for what you've done. But that's not true. Feeling bad about what you've done can be a result of repentance, but it's not repentance. Some have said that repentance is turning 180 degrees from whatever it is you're doing. That's wrong. And that's true. Repentance should mean that you stop doing whatever sin you're doing. However, what the problem with that is that just describes what's happening. It's not really a definition um, that would help us understand the dynamics of it. And then I've also heard that repentance is changing your thinking on the situation involved. And I would say that comes closest to understanding repentance. But again, it fails to break it down for us. 
I would explain it like this, right? Repentance is turning from relying on created things, so anything, to get you through life, to relying on the creator to get you through. You see, I think I've said it here before, and I'll probably say it again and again. Sin is not just breaking God's law. It is that for sure. But that's kind of uh, superficial. I don't know if that's fair. It's not deep enough for me anyway. Because ultimately, when we sin, we are, at some stage in the process, acting out upon a belief that this thing we're doing or not doing is better for us than doing whatever God wants us to do. That's why the lads who say, you know, repentance is about changing your thinking are, in my opinion anyway, the closest to the truth. But it's not just about changing your thinking. It's about admitting that this thing here, whatever you're doing, this action, this inaction, has become more important, more enjoyable, more central to your life than actually following God. So repentance is is about a change, changing what you put your trust in. Do you trust in yourself or someone else or some idea or philosophy or do you trust in God? To put it another another way, what do you rely on? What do you rely on to get through your life? Are you going to create things or to create? And there's there's two pushbacks on this one. On one hand, people who like their talk of sin and repentance in nice, neat categories... They're not into this because a good understanding of repentance means that sometimes dealing with our sin is no simple task. Things can get gray very easily, very quickly, sorry. And sometimes it's not enough to say, I won't do this or I won't do that. Um, You've got to ask, why am I doing it? What's driving me back to this place again and again? And some people aren't into that. They like their sins nice and easy and in a box, you know, so they'll say, okay, don't sleep with somebody else's wife. Tick. But they won't ask the question, why do I keep thinking of sleeping with her in the first place? Um, Why do I continually find myself in her presence? Or you could say, right, I won't be sectarian. And you could make up your mind not to be sectarian. Out loud. But when you're on your own, or when you're in the right company, you you take a look over the fence, and you're like, look, I'd have stayed at him. You never ask, you never ask. What's going on here? I'm all nice and ecumenical most of the time, but when I'm on my own. And what's going on here is this. Christians, us, we don't just need to repent of our sin. They also, we also repent of our righteousness. Your righteousness is the thing that you hide in. It's the thing that you do or that you have that you rely on to get you through life. For instance, I heard this... um, this horrible story, actually, recently of a pastor uh, in, in the States who was not known for his, or he was known, sorry, for his great counseling abilities, right? He was very emph- emphatic. You know, when you, when you were in his presence, you felt like you had his complete attention. He understood and felt your pain, right? But it came out later on that he was also a manipulator and that he had several affairs with some of the women that he counseled. And when he was caught, what he said was that he would confess his sins all the time. He would plead with God for forgiveness, and he would say, I'm going to resolve not to do this again, but then it would happen again. Now, you see, his problem, right, was that he never asked the question, why am I doing this? 
what is it about what I'm doing that I enjoy more than my relationship with Jesus? Why do I go to these actions for solace and consolation rather than, rather than to the knowledge that I have a heavenly Father who loves me and a Savior who died for me? But had he asked those questions, which he didn't, he might have realized that his reputation as a great counselor was too much for him to give up. That was his righteousness. He didn't want to be caught out. He didn't want all that stuff to come out. He never repented of it. Because a Christian can't have two righteousnesses. righteousnesses. We only have one. And that's the one that Jesus earned for us on the cross. That and that alone is where our refreshment comes from. Oh, yes, and the other, the other pushback comes from, from the other side, those who think that talk of sin is completely wrong, and well, I, I won't bother address that, but there's sometimes the same people, they won't go that far, but they'll say that all this talk of repentance and faith and sin, you know, that's only making people self-focused, and it's guilt-inducing. And both of these things hinder, they say, the real work of the Christian, which is go, do good works, build the kingdom of God. And look, we've got to build the kingdom of God, I'm not saying that. And there's definitely a real danger that once you start peeling back the layers and examining your motives that you, you turn into a bit of a navel gazer and you try to do things only when you've got pure motives. And that's not going to help either. If you want to love someone, the way to do it is not to try and make, her feel yourself, make yourself feel more loving. The way to do it is to find out what's good for this person and do it. Right? That's fair enough. If you're waiting around for pure motives before you act, you'll never act. Or if, this happens to me a lot, if you're in the middle of doing something and you get the sense that uh, your motives are mixed, don't let that stop you from doing the right thing. So there's definitely a good objection there, but other than that, to say that talk of sin hinders the building of the kingdom misses the very obvious point, that there's no greater hindrance to a good, building a good community or doing good than your own sin. I just came away... I was in Dublin there last night. Was it last night? The night before, I don't know. Uh, with, the, with Union College. And we ended up watching this video of the um, Amish Christian community. You know those guys in America? And how they deal with forgiveness. And how they would immediately repent of any sense of bitterness or vengeance towards people who had hurt them. And the whole video was just story after story of these amazing acts of forgiveness and it was all done because they knew that they had been forgiven by Jesus of their sins, and he commanded them to do likewise to anyone who sinned against them. And so, and he, like, you know, some of them had kids that were murdered, and I, I can't even go into it because I'll only start bawling, crying. It was, but it was, it was unbelievable. I've never seen anything like it. And they loved these people. But you can't do things like that if you're not willing to listen to God about what he has to say about sin and repentance and forgiveness. And lastly, there's this. If you have a problem with repenting or with talk of sin, do you know how you're going to get things done? By your own skills, your own strength, your own abilities, by determination and sheer hard work. And you should use those things. But when they're all you use, you end up undercutting the real source of power in your life. And it's not your gifts, it's not great courage, it's not even great faith, it's your weakness. The power of the Holy Spirit comes to us in our weaknesses. 
in our brokenness. So if you can't admit your problems, you can't admit your real motives that you take away from Jesus, then no matter how successful you are, you're actually devoid of real spiritual power. And this too, I think, is by the the way, is the reason I'm pretty sure that a dependence on the miraculous stuff fades off as the New Testament progresses. Because if we had easy access to being able to do those kind of things, I think it would just be so easy to start falling in love with yourself and not God. And that's it, folks. The Spirit calls us to a life of repentance. Refreshment and blessing awaits those who follow him. Shane. Oh, it's...